All right, the scripture reading is from John 10, 14 through 16. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. These are the very words of God. Well, good morning, Crosstown. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to be here today to preach God's word to you. We first joined Crosstown about 2010 uh, when it was meeting at uh, several locations ago. And we only get the opportunity to be back in America every two to four years. And so I'm always very thankful to come and have the opportunity to speak. When I begin to think about uh, this church and how missional-minded it was, I thought, I want to bring this type of sermon because I want to continue to foster in this church uh, a biblical motivation for missions, a biblical confidence for missions, and a biblical urgency for missions. And after spending 18 years overseas, I, I can attest that there are, um, well, there are some ways of thinking and there's some motivations and there's ways of, of urgency in missions that are not honoring to the Lord. And so I thought I would bring this warning from John chapter 10, there's a book called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. And the author takes a look and lists out 50 reasons from the Bible. And today I want to speak about one of those reasons. And the reason is this. Jesus came to die to gather all his sheep from around the world. Now we get this truth from John chapter 10, verses 15 and 16, where he says, I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. First, I'd like to make, a, I'd like to make four, four observations about verses 15 and 16. The phrase, I lay down my life for the sheep, refers specifically to Jesus' death. Now, Jesus brings up his death directly and indirectly about eight times in the New Testament, but his disciples simply didn't understand that he was what he was talking about. They did not expect the future King Messiah to die, let alone be individually resurrected, but rather they expected the Messiah to defeat the foreigners and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. So in the phrase, I laid down my life for the sheep, this is referring to his own death. Now secondly, Jesus affirms that within the people of Israel, there are those who are his sheep. When he says, I have sheep that are not of this fold, the implication is there are sheep who are of the fold of Israel. Now, to the disciples, the idea of having sheep that belong to the fold of God but not being Jews, that's a surprising piece of information. The obvious information is that Jesus has sheep that are of the Jews. But the surprising piece is that there are sheep that are not Jewish. Praise God, because I don't, unless anyone here is Jewish, I'm not Jewish. We're all of the non-Jewish sheep. That means that he's referring to Gentiles. Now, when, as 21st century believers who read the Old Testament, it is not surprising to us when we read the Old Testament that we find references to the people of God, the covenant people of God, including non-Jews. For example, in Genesis chapter 12, we read that God blessed Abram in order for him to be a blessing to the peoples of the whole world. Hosea chapter 1, God says that those who are not his people will be called children of the living God. Isaiah 49 
God makes the servant as a light to the nations so that salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. In Jeremiah 16, it says that the nations will come from the ends of the earth to honor God. And then there are the numerous, numerous times where God says, I'm doing a certain thing in order, to, in order for the nations to know that I am God. But to the disciples, they were so dominated and ruled by the Gentile Romans, and the disciples were looking forward to a future Messiah as one who would conquer the Gentiles. So the idea of Jesus having sheep outside of the flock of Israel would have been scandalous, if not repulsive. Now third, Jesus expresses both his intention and his will to bring in the sheep when he says, I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. He doesn't just simply wish that there will be sheep enter the flock, but he purposes and he will accomplish that those sheep will enter the flock. And fourth, Jesus points to the unification of the Jewish and the Gentile sheep from the various places into a single flock. He says, so there will be one flock, one shepherd, And by Jesus saying this, he anticipates the the eradication of the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Now, unlike Jesus' disciples who are hearing this information real time, right? They're hearing it real time, which we are not. As 21st century Christians, we can use the Bible to understand what was Jesus talking about when he referred to sheep who were not of the flock of Israel. We can look at a picture that we find in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, and in Revelation 7, verse 9, and I'm going to read these. Revelation 5, 9 is part of the song that the elders sang to to Jesus, and it says, For you were slain, again referring to his death, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Through Jesus' death he ransomed people for God from all over the earth. So Jesus came to die to gather all his sheep from around the world. And then we have Revelation 7, 9. It says, After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. The picture that we get of Revelation 7, 9 here is God sitting on the throne with people worshiping him and the number of those that couldn't, the, the number that was there was such that it couldn't be counted with the naked eye. Those people, according to Revelation 7.14, are believers in Jesus who will be killed during the Great Tribulation. And it says that those people from, are from every nation, every tribe, every language. And then we read further down in Revelation 7.17 that the Lamb, who is at the center of the throne, will shepherd them. Uh, I mean, the lambs don't usually shepherd, right? But here is our Lamb. He's going to be shepherding them. And then we see right there a glimpse of the one flock, the one shepherd, people from all over the world. Jesus is the shepherd, and the flock are made up of people too numerous to count with the naked eye, and those people are so diverse in skin color, in hair color, in worship styles, and who knows what other factors John saw whenever he, whenever he saw and looked out at that to make him make this statement. The scriptures say that they were from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. And my aim this morning is to help you build a biblical motivation, a biblical confidence, a biblical urgency for being part of the mission to gather all of Jesus' sheep from around the world. What I'm trying to communicate this morning is not that there is only one biblical motivation, but I want to move you toward perhaps a more biblical motivation. My concern is that there are some motivations for being on mission that are unhelpful, that lead to unhealthy thinking and unhealthy practices. 
18 years of being overseas, and I want to address what I think are some unhelpful motivations. The Bible contains passages that have to do with the end times. The events leading up to when Jesus is going to return to judge the living and the dead, and we call those passages apocalyptic. In the Bible, there are historical passages, right? There are poems, there are prophecies, there are genealogies, there are personal letters. And when we read our Bibles and want to think about what a passage of the Bible means, we first have to ask ourselves the question, what type of passage are we reading? Are we reading history? Are we reading prophecy? Are we reading poems? There are general rules that we, read, that we use for interpreting historical passages that we don't use when we interpret prophecies. Historical sections can be taken quite literally. Like when it says that David went and did such and such a thing at such and such a place, we can take that very literally because it's a historical passage. Whereas pictures that we find in apocalyptic or in times about, you know, a horse that was, had a certain, you know, color and a certain head and all these eyes and all this thing that you read, right, that it's not necessarily something that we can take literally. So one characteristic of apocalyptic literature is that it uses hyperbolic or it uses exaggerative language. It uses words like every or always or never or phrases like we find in Revelation 7-9, a number which cannot be counted. Now clearly it could be counted. But these are used to make an impact on the reader and not for precision. The language of overemphasis is used for impact. So I'll give another example. In Jude 7, the fire that is the punishment for Sodom and Gomorrah is called an eternal fire. We cannot go to a physical place today where Sodom and Gomorrah were located and find a fire that is still burning to this day. Now, it may be hot in the desert where it used to be located, but there's not an eternal fire that's still blazing there today. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what could eternal fire mean? If it doesn't mean how long the fire has been burning, if the eternal nature of the fire is not a length of time in the sense it's continued to burn from then until now without stopping, then another possibility is that the eternal here refers to the length of the effect of the fire. That is, what was the effect of the fire? The effect was those cities were completely destroyed. The judgment was completely effective. And so it's an eternal fire in the sense that the judgment that happened on it and the effect that happened as a result of the fire is eternally effective. So when we read eternal fire, we can't think, well, I guess there's still a fire there burning today. So when we read end times passages like Daniel 7 through 12, sections of Zechariah, Matthew 24 and 25, Mark chapter 13, 2 Thessalonians, Jude, Revelation, we have to take into account the exaggerative hyperbolic language that is used for effect and not for precision. Which means taking a phrase literally may not be the best interpretation. So I hope the question that's arising in your mind is why is Josh rambling on and on about apocalyptic right, ways to interpret apocalyptic literature? Well, we're talking about Revelation 7-9. If we're going to find a picture of the sheep in the one flock with the one shepherd in Revelation chapter 7, we have to think about what type of literature are we reading. There is a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages that John saw. He was speaking for impact and not necessarily for precision. The multitude was so big that to the naked eye, the number of people could not be counted, but what could be described was ethnicity. We should allow the weight of this to impact us. John looked out and saw people of, I mean, just the various, think about his own experience and then the nations he had never seen in his own personal life, and yet he looks out in the vision, 
And he sees people, skin colors and hair colors and hairstyles. I mean, he had never seen those before, but he could describe that. The one flock under the one shepherd will be very diverse. And so since this is an apocalyptic passage, I have to leave room for the possibility that the words every and all here, when it comes to the people groups or the ethnic groups or the tribes, is being used for impact and not for precision. I'm not saying that it cannot be the case that every tribe will be represented. But if I take these words literally, that interpretation can impact my motivation and my confidence and my urgency for permissions in unhealthy ways. I'm not saying that it will. I'm just simply saying that it can. And this is a larger topic of missions history that I can't really get into today. But what I can talk about is my own background. My background is in linguistics. Linguistics, linguists all disagree. I mean, they don't all disagree, but linguists disagree in general on how many languages there are in the world. The line between language and dialect and cultural identities is not easy to draw. This means that it is not possible. It is not possible to put an exact number on how many tribes, or if you want to call them ethnic groups, or if you want to call them people groups, that currently exist in the world, let alone have existed in the past. You can read online how there's 16,543 people groups in the world, or about the 6,701 unreached people groups in the world. That would be those people groups who are considered unreached by a certain definition. But there's simply no way to know if our man-made definition, if our man-made partition of these ethnic groups is what God's word refers to when it says nations and tribes. So one major problem with putting an exact number on the number of people groups in the world is that it can give a false sense of the task. It can give a false sense of the goal of missions. If we could quantify the number of people groups and if we could determine which ones had no believers and no churches, then the goal of those unreached people groups having the gospel witness, it could be a goal. If a person's motivation for being on mission is to reduce the number of unreached people groups in the world to being reached people groups, they will find themselves frustrated because that number continues to be in flux based on the changing definition of language and dialect and people group. But not only that, if the goal is simply to move a people group from unreached to reached, then we have to ask ourselves the question, in the last 30 years this has changed so much, what's the definition of reached? Is it one person coming to believe? Is it two people believing? Is it a small group of church? Is it a small church? Is it a small group of churches? Is it 1%? Is it 2%? Is it 10%? And it has changed. In the last 30 to 50 years, mission strategy and mission sending has become so hyper-focused on unreached people groups to the neglect of missions includes much, much more than frontier pioneer missionary work. The command from our master is to make disciples and to baptize. The tragedy is that what is a description that we find, a description of what we find in Revelation 7, has become a prescription for what the church must be doing to finish the task. The description we find in Revelation 7-9 of all people groups worshiping around the th a throne should not be our benchmark by which we measure mission success. It should be our, and it should not be our primary motivation for being involved in missions, whether it be missions giving, missions going, missions mobilization. Now, that is, there is a reality, right? I am, I am so thankful that since the 1960s, we have moved from thinking we're going to go and send missionaries to, to let's say, uh, I was going to say a country, but I'm going to not say that country. Let's say Afghanistan, okay? We're going to send missionaries to Afghanistan 
And then we see people come to believe and great, there's a few believers in Afghanistan and we can move on because the next nation, we can go to the next nation. No, the idea of geopolitical nations like Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, we've become, we live more in reality by understanding what people groups are, what languages are, what dialects are, what cultural identity is. And I want us to live in reality. But I don't want to, certain realities to become our, well, an unhealthy motivation. And I want to address one more reality before I move on. If you have been to an OSU football game, you can imagine yourself sitting there in the stadium. I mean, it's 65, 68,000 people now, I think, with the newest random renovations. If you've been to an OU football game, I don't know, I think it's 86,000 or 90,000. I can't remember how many. I mean, a lot of people are sitting around there. You can imagine that group, right? And every single day, there is an OSU football stadium worth of people who die without ever having heard the gospel. Now, that is reality. Every day. That means in 20 days, an Oklahoma City's worth of people go into eternity without Christ. Now, many in the missions world, they want to focus on those that are perishing without ever having heard the gospel of Christ. They want the lost to be the primary motivation for missions giving and missions mobilization and missions going, but there's a problem with the lost being your fo- their focus. It's a problem with the lost being your primary motivation, and that is it is a man-centered focus, which means you begin to ask the question, what are you doing to contribute to the problem? And if this is the question, then you have to answer the question with, I have to give more. I have to pray more. I have to go now. But there are questions with, there are problems with both the questions and the answers from having the lost as your primary motivation for missions. From the time that I was mobilized to missions 25 years ago, I have heard and seen this motivation. I was mobilized to missions under this motivation with the number of those who die every day without hearing the gospel. And that was my primary motivation for a long time, and I've seen so much missionary burnout. I've seen God dishonoring theology. I've seen God dishonoring practices and behaviors that have stemmed from having the lost as the motivation. So, in our remaining time today, what I would like to speak about is a more biblical motivation, a more biblical confidence that we have in missions, and a biblical urgency that we can have that comes from having a biblical Motivation and urgency, or confidence in missions. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is Christ, in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul endured everything that he endured and did everything that he did for the sake of the elect. Now, who are the elect? Well, there have been whole books written about that, but I'm only going to give two sentences. Okay, the elect are those people chosen by God to be saved. And that choosing is not based on anything that the person would ever do, but based on God's own choice. The way that we see the elect talked about in John chapter 10 is that they are the sheep of the one flock under the one shepherd. Jesus says these sheep will hear the voice of the shepherd and he will bring them in and they will follow him. Paul's motivation for his work was the elect. 
He endured everything for the sake of the elect. Paul's perspective was that he was the voice of the shepherd, the ambassador that Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, when he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled, be reconciled to God. Our role, our job, our mission should not be fueled primarily by the fact that there are 65,000 people every day who die without ever having heard the gospel, but that number should help us live in reality. And at the same time, it should be, our motivation should be, we do what we do for the sake of the elect, the scattered children of God from all over the world who have to hear the good news and be saved. Now, have to hear the good news, and yet they are elect. The children of God will be saved because they are elect. And at the same time, God has ordained the work such that being born again happens through hearing the gospel. Now, this is not called a paradox. I mean, paradox is just simply like uh, self-contradictory statements, uh, which can only be true if it's false. I mean, that's the idea of what a paradox is. But I'm going to introduce a new word to you if you've never heard it today. It's antinomy. Antinomy is the idea that there are apparent contradictions between two valid conclusions. That is, you've got conclusion one and conclusion two. It looks like there's an apparent contradiction, but yet both conclusions are valid. Can't really seem to bring them together yet. And there are two valid conclusions that we find in the Bible. I mean, there's more conclusions than this, right? But conclusion number one is that all the elect will be saved. And number two is that being born again happens through the preaching and hearing of the gospel. Because if you think all the elect will be saved, well, then why do they need to hear? They're going to be saved. But yet, no, no, God has ordained it such that the faith being given to someone happens through the preaching of the gospel. So I have to ask the question, where do we get the idea? Well, it's from Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all, all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. There are a few points that I want to bring up from these verses. Number one, everyone and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord for salvation will be saved. Number two, they cannot call on him if they haven't believed in him. Number three, they cannot believe in him if they've never heard of him. Number four, they will not hear unless someone communicates the gospel to them. And number five, no one is going to preach to them unless they are sent. So if we take from Ephesians 2 what we know about faith being a gift from God, something you cannot earn, and we look at Romans 10, 17, which says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ or through the preached word about Christ, then we can put these things to realize to, together to realize the New Testament is saying this. Faith, which is a gift from God, is given to the elect when they have the gospel preached to them. I have no qualms with holding intention the idea that the, the elect will be saved and at the same time they must hear the gospel. These are two valid conclusions that the New Testament both affirm. So how has God chosen for the elect his scattered the sheep who are not of this fold to be saved through the preaching of the gospel. Will all the elect be saved? Yes. All Jesus' sheep will hear his voice and will follow him. So what does this mean for our motivation regarding missions? 
whether it's missions, giving or praying or mobilizing, it doesn't matter what aspect of it, our motivation should be we do what we do and endure everything that we endure for the sake of the elect because God has chosen for our preaching of the gospel to be the means by which the elect are saved. We don't choose to go, but we are sent as ambassadors. We are sent when he sends us. We go when he, where he sends us. We do not go any earlier or any later. We do not give any more money any earlier or any later than what he has chosen for us to give. Had he wanted or foreordained missionaries to go to certain places in the world, a hundred years ago, he would have sent them. Had he foreordained his church to give a million more dollars to missions last year, he would have mobilized them to do so. And when it comes to missions, many in the missions church, excuse me, many in the church and in the missions world have a man-centered view of giving money to missions and going on missions, so much so that service and missions does not lead to greater enjoyment of God as we see him work through us. Instead, a man-centered view leads to a man-made mission strategies to check off boxes. It leads to lists of people groups that are somewhat arbitrary and always in flux, and it leads to Christians feeling condemned because they are not doing enough, and it leads missionaries feeling defeated because they cannot do enough. Our motivation should be we do what we do for the sake of the elect. We endure everything for them because God has chosen for our preaching of the gospel to be the means by which the elect are saved. So if that is our motivation as we go on mission then, what is our confidence? And I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 5.20 one more time. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. When we preach the gospel, we can be certain that God is the one who is appealing through us. Right? He's already foreordained that the preaching of the gospel is the means by which these people are going to be saved. And right here, he is sending us as ambassadors. He is appealing through us. And if he's the one appealing through us, then we can be sure that he's the, he is the one working in others to overcome their sin and to birth them again, to bring them from death to life. That should produce great confidence in us as we think about preaching the gospel. 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Did you hear the two groups? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death leading to death. To the other, a fragrance of life from life to life. God is leading us in victory and through us spreads the fragrance of, not, of knowing him. And if, but that same fragrance of Christ does not smell the same to all people. In verse 16, it says that to one group we smell like death and to another group we smell like life. This passage is very clear that there are two groups of people. There are those who are going to smell us. I mean, you know what I'm saying. Okay, they're going to smell us and they're going to smell Christ. They're going to smell us knowing Christ. And that's going to be repulsive. It's going to be sickening, like death. And there's another group that's going to smell and they're going to smell. I mean, I kind of think of it like that, like the smell you smell when the, when the breeze kind of comes after the rain, just kind of refreshing. This is why we should not take it personally when we are rejected for preaching the gospel. When we are rejected for being Christians, 
to holding to biblical standards, for, for speaking the good news to people. But that is not our emotional experience, right? Our emotional experience is to feel rejected. But then we have the command of our master in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. It says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted. For your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We can have great confidence in God because he is the one who is leading us. He is the one who is through us spreading the aroma of Christ. He is the one who is appealing through us. He is the one who has ordained the preaching of the gospel to be the means by which people are born again. There should be such great confidence that when you go out from this place today and are light and salt, that it leads to boldness. John chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought all of his own out, he goes before them and the sheep will follow him for they know his voice. When we preach the gospel, when we speak the gospel, when we share gospel nuggets of truth with people, we can have confidence that his sheep will hear his voice and that they will follow him. This should give us tremendous confidence, a tremendous boldness to speak the gospel. This confidence empowers us to go to those sheep not from the flock of Israel, that is, his sheep out among the nations and the peoples of the world where we have to learn a new language or two or three in some cases in order for them to hear and understand and believe and be discipled. His sheep will hear his voice. The sheep coming into the fold is not dependent upon our power to persuade or to change a dead person into a living person. And we praise God for that. I think I mentioned this in the beginning, but the biblical motivation of having the elect as our motivation for missions is not the only biblical, it's not the only motivation for missions. But it is important to live in reality that there are people groups in the world who do not have any gospel witness 2,000 years after Christ has been resurrected and ascended. There are 65,000 people who die today who have never heard the gospel, who are going to perish. This is reality. We should live in that. But as you are involved in mission, however God is calling you to be involved, I want you to have a God-honoring way of thinking about being on mission. And so lest you think that I'm dispassionate about missions or cold toward those who die never having heard the gospel, I want to be clear that our motivation for missions and our confidence in missions should lead us to have a biblical, a, a biblical urgency, a greater urgency, a greater fervor, a greater zeal for obeying the, great, the commandment that, to make disciples and for sharing the good news with all people in the world, not just simply all peoples in the world. Colossians 1, 28 through 29. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The Apostle Paul toiled and struggled with all the energy that God powerfully worked within him. If God is causing your heart to incline toward more missions giving or more missions mobilization or more missions going or more missions prayer, then labor and struggle 
toward that desire that God is putting in you when we cannot, it is impossible for someone to toil and struggle dispassionately. Just the very words themselves evoke emotion and passion. We are not dispassionate about those who have never heard. There should be a God-inspired urgency that we have when we think about our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors, and the nations. But Paul doesn't simply just toil and struggle, but he did so with all of God's energy that God powerfully inspired and worked within him. Paul had an urgency from God. And we have to ask then, what is God's perspective on those who've never heard the gospel? I mean, I get emotional about it. But what is God's perspective? Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 23 and verses 32 says this. This is God speaking. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord. So repent and live. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He commands all people everywhere to repent so that they may live. We also do not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, but we pray that they would come to the same saving grace that we have experienced. Ezekiel chapter 33 is a very, well, if you've never read it, I would encourage you to read it after the service is over sometime today. There's a picture of a watchman on the wall in Ezekiel chapter 33, and the picture there, it should be jolting to us. The watchman has been put on the watchtower up on a wall by God to look for when judgment by the sword is coming upon a city. And the watchman's job is to look for the judgment that's coming and then to warn the people in the city that it's coming. Now, the watchman is given a trumpet to warn the people when he sees the judgment about to come. And for the people who listen to the warning and repent, well, they will be saved. But for those who ignore the warning, the responsibility for their death is on their own head. But if the watchman does not blow the trumpet to warn the people... God says the wicked still die because of their own sin. But he holds their death responsible. Well, he holds the, excuse me, the watchman responsible for their own, for their death. And what I would say is that you all are watchmen on a wall because you know that judgment is coming upon this earth. You have been given a gospel to proclaim. And if you warn people and they do not repent and heed your warning, well, they perish because of their own sin. But if you do not warn them, they still die and are judged because of their own sin. But there is some level of responsibility that we hold that the judge of all the earth will require from us. And no doubt that's a hard word. And I don't know what it means to be responsible for the death of someone else because I did not preach the gospel to them. But the picture of the watchman in Ezekiel 33, it should give us a newfound level of urgency. God does not delight in the death of the wicked, so he commands everyone everywhere to repent and to live. We have a biblical motivation for making disciples. That is, we endure everything for the sake of the elect, knowing that the preaching of the gospel is what God uses to save people. We have a biblical confidence for being on mission because we are God's ambassadors through whom God himself is appealing to the world. And we can have a biblical urgency 
to toil and to struggle for God's glory by God's power so that all people will have an opportunity to hear the gospel, knowing that judgment is coming one day. And we have all of these so that the sheep from around the world will hear his voice, the voice of the shepherd, through our gospel preaching, and will follow him and join the one flock of God from around the world. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will bring people to mind that you know are not saved, and that you will ask him right now to empower you to toil and to struggle with a biblical motivation and with a confidence and a newfound urgency that compels you to move forward in action. It is hard to talk about missions without talking about, I mean, to me, there, there, there is no, well, how do I say this? I mean, 18 years as a missionary, uh, I, I'm passionate about overseas missions, but I'm passionate about whatever God has put right in front of you where you are today. It is, it is, um, how do I say this? It is easy to fall in love with the abstract and with the distant. It is easy to know about news from certain parts of the world where there are orphans, certain people groups who have never heard, and to have this passion and say, all of a sudden I feel this, this, this I think a God, could be a God-given love toward people who are far away and who are distant, who are abstract. But that's easy to do. It is hard today to live where you live and love those who don't love you. And what happens is when you get there to those places that you love so much here in America, and you get to India or you get to China or you get to Japan, and you meet people every day who don't, do not only love you, they wish you weren't even there, that easy love for the abstract and the distant, that's not going to keep you there. So I want you to be more on mission, overseas involvement in missions, but I don't want you to do that if you're not loving those who don't love you right here where you are today. So that's why I'm praying that the Spirit will bring the people into your mind and you will toil and struggle to that end because he is appealing through you. There's a great confidence that we can have because it is him who is working in them. He's working in us. The fragrance of Christ is going out from us. And if they're repulsed by you, don't feel rejected. Rejoice and be glad. And if they're attracted to your light and your salt, well, rejoice and be glad. It's not by your own power. My prayer is that all of you will become more passionate about being ambassadors, the ambassadors that God has called you to be. So I'm going to pray for us now. That is okay. Our Father, we thank you. God, we thank you that you do not delight in the death of the wicked. And you looked upon mercy. You looked with mercy upon us. And you saved us. You saved us in Christ Jesus. We, we, we just again confess our complete unworthiness to be called your children. And yet you, out of love, you are the compassionate. You are the grace-filled. You are the merciful. You are the loving God. And I pray that my brothers and sisters who are here, that you would fill them with boldness, that you would fill them with confidence, that they would be the light and the salt that you've called them to be, and that through their preaching of the gospel this week, that, that your glory and your kingdom would continue to spread on this earth. I pray that you would move 
continue to move them toward being more passionate about missions here in Oklahoma, about missions in America, and about missions all around the world. I pray that you would, that you would teach them the, the difficulty of loving those who, who don't love them back so that their enjoyment of you would be just that much more greater. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you're moving through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.